This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show. Today, we'll be speaking with Bill Neville. Bill is a retirement account expert and business development manager at the Entrust Group, a custodian that holds self-directed retirement accounts. If you've ever been confused about self-directed IRAs or anything related to retirement accounts, you need to listen to this episode. We go over a lot of information in great detail, so prepare to take a lot of notes. Enjoy. Go ahead and introduce yourself and kind of let us know, you know who you are and what do you do and how long have you been working in this industry? I'm Bill Neville. My name is Bill Neville, and the company I work for is called the Entrust Group, and we are uh, administrators and custodians of what are called self-directed retirement accounts, and we'll get into what exactly that means in a little bit. Um, Entrust has been in business since 1981, so we've been in business for 38 years. I've been with the company for just over eight years. Uh, I started out as um, my title was manager of franchise operations. We had some franchise offices at the time, and the owner of our company ended up selling those all to their to their to the individual uh, franchise owners, and then I moved to compliance and internal audit within the company for a couple of years, and now I do business development, uh, which I've been doing now for about five years. And essentially, my role as business development manager is to educate people about what a self-directed retirement account is. So, so my business development is is not so much trying to to sell it's to educate it's to explain to people how it works what the rules are so i really essentially what we're going to be doing for the next however long it takes is really what i do all day long is that people call me up or i do uh presentations not necessarily all day long but i do presentations to groups to explain what the rules are around investing in in non-traditional assets inside a retirement account so things other than publicly traded stocks bonds mutual funds so like i said we'll get into the specifics of of that as we go along. Great. I was wondering who are the kind of people who are calling you? Are they like HR representatives or are they individuals who are looking into doing it themselves? Yeah, mostly it's individuals who are looking to do it themselves. I mean, we do get calls, not HR, but we'll get financial advisors. Um, I'll get realtors, investment sponsors. So like, you know, there are a lot of people out there who maybe they have a private fund that they're looking to raise funding or, or startup companies or anybody who's really looking to raise capital and they want to uh, offer the ability for retirement accounts to make those investments, then I'll get calls from, from them to understand, you know, what they need to know that they're talking to their potential investors or, again, realtors who might have clients who are looking to invest in real estate or financial advisors who want to branch out into alternative assets and not just be limited to stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. But the majority of the people are individual investors who you know, they, they want to invest in a property or they found some uh, investment opportunity and they heard they can do it inside a retirement account and they're calling to find out how that works, what the rules are. Sometimes people have a pretty good understanding and they're looking for very specific things around. Uh, there are some rules we'll get into about prohibited transactions. And so sometimes people have done enough research to know um, that potentially they might be a disqualified person. And so they want to have specific questions around that. So that happens every once in a while. Those are good conversations when those happen. But largely, it's really very like early, new kind of, hey, I heard I can invest in real estate inside an IRA. Can you tell me everything I need to know to how, you know, how that works? Absolutely. And so what are the typical questions that people are asking you? How long does it take? 
what's the process? What are your fees? I mean, those are that's like the big three that I get. I, I if I never have to answer what are your fees ever again, I'll be a happy guy because every single every single conversation ends with that. But that's okay. I understand the need for that. Um, but yeah, just like uh, you know, I want to invest in this. Can you tell me like what I need to know, what the rules are, and how long how long does it take? Is probably the most the most popular question after what are your fees? Right. I mean, when you hear about things like self directed IRAs and it's something different, you assume the fees are very high, which is probably why people ask that question a lot. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I actually think people just have no idea whatsoever. Like I could say it's $5,000 and they'd be okay. You know, not that they'd be okay with it, but they might be like, oh, okay. Sounds reasonable. To, well, I don't know if that would sound reasonable, but I think people could come in with like really completely no idea. Like I could give the, I could have this massive range that they, it could be anywhere from here to here. They have no idea. And so we mostly get whenever we do tell the fees, uh, I mean, I'll get everything from, wow, how do you guys stay in business to, oh, well, that sounds pretty reasonable to upon occasion, I'll get, you know, wow, that's high. And uh, my comment to that is always like, have you ever looked at what you're paying your brokerage firm to hold those funds? Because if you do look at that, you'll realize our fees are actually really dramatic. And I'm not just talking about interest. I'm talking about the industry. The self-directed IRA industry tends to be pretty inexpensive comparatively to most banks and brokerage firms and what they charge to hold stocks and not stocks so much, but mutual funds. Right. And we had this conversation yesterday, but can you go over the difference between a regular IRA versus a self-directed IRA? Yeah. Um, the term self-directed means really two things. It means that that when you say self-directed, it, it's really describing the service that the custodian provides, right? So self-directed by definition means two things. The in account holder makes all the investment decisions. So when you have a, your account with a self-directed custodian, as opposed to a typical custodian like a brokerage firm or a bank, like Merrill Lynch, Charles Schwab, Fidelity, TD Ameritrade, like everybody's familiar with all those names, those banks and brokerage firms, one, they typically are going to have somebody who's going to advise you. They're going to do maybe some research and due diligence on the investment you want to make in theory. Um, they're going to have a conversation with you, get an understanding of what your risk tolerance is and what your, you know, what your age is. And then they'll recommend investments for you to make. They'll say, you know, we think that these three or four mutual funds are really good or maybe a mix of stocks and bonds or blah, blah, blah. And then you can choose to say, okay, that sounds good. I'll make those investments. Or you say, no, I want to invest in this stock and this mutual fund. But the underlying theme is that they're limiting you to only investing in publicly traded stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. So for that reason, because of that, and most people, like 97% of the population that has retirement accounts, that account is held by a bank or brokerage firm. Most people think that the only thing you're allowed to invest in is publicly traded stocks, bonds, and mutual funds, because that's what the bank and brokerage firm is willing to hold inside the retirement account. And that's what they typically advise. But within a retirement account, you're allowed to invest in pretty much anything you want, almost anything you want. I'll mention the things that you can't invest in, but you need to have your account with a custodian who's willing to hold and process whatever investment that you want to make. So if you want to invest in real estate, or if you want to invest in a private company, or if you want to do notes and lend money from your IRA, or if you will, precious metals or uh, tax liens, trustees. I, I, I may have mentioned this to you yesterday when we spoke. We had somebody invest in a racehorse one time inside their account in a in, a, in cattle, um, in, a, in a bowling alley, in an airplane. Um, these are all 
investments that are, as long as the assets being invested in are used for investment purposes only, and again, I keep saying this, we'll get into more details around that later, but um, the, the self-directed, what that means is that the custodian you have the account with is willing to hold non-traditional assets, but the custodian also isn't going to do any research or due diligence on the investment. So that's what that means. That's the difference between your more sort of standard retirement account with uh, Fidelity, Charles Schwab, Merrill Lynch, companies like that, and a company like Entrust and some of our competitors, it really comes down to they advise, but they only hold stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. We don't advise or do any due diligence, but we'll hold other investments besides just stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. And Entrust specifically, as long as the investment you want to make isn't specifically prohibited by the IRS, then we're willing to hold it. So there are some self-directed custodians that might not be interested in holding, let's say, single member LLCs, or they might not be interested in holding, let's say, a cannabis-related fund, or you know, some of these things that are not prohibited, but they may make a business decision not to hold those. Um, whereas with an interest specifically, as long as it's not prohibited by the IRS, we're willing to hold it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I, I want to make one thing very clear. Uh, one of the major breakthroughs I got from speaking with you yesterday was that it's not like this is a special, you know, IRA. It's still the regular traditional IRA or Roth right. IRA. That's just right. that you are the holder. And because you guys are the holder, now we can invest in different things. Exactly. So, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, a traditional IRA with Entrust is exactly the same as a traditional IRA with Schwab and Fidelity and Merrill Lynch from a, from a contribution rules, from a tax rules standpoint. I mean, the contribution limits aren't different. When somebody opens an account with us, they still have to choose a type of account. They still have to open either a traditional or a Roth or a SEP or a simple 401k, like some type of retirement account. They have to establish that with us. But just by definition, the fact that we're holding the account means that it's self-directed. And I put quotes in the air because self-directed is not a type of account. It's a description of the service that we provide or the type of custodian that we are. And you will see sometimes you'll see like I've seen advertisements on TV where a traditional brokerage firm will advertise that they have a self-directed retirement account because they're saying we're not going to provide you any advisory services. It's, you know, you get cheaper and you can use our platform and you can buy all the stocks and mutual funds you want inside your retirement account, but we're not going to advise you. So, hey, it's self-directed. But in reality, it's not truly self-directed because they're not letting you invest in everything. They're not letting you invest in things other than just publicly traded stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. So their definition of self-directed, which simply means you're not being advised, is very different from what I consider to be the industry definition of self-directed, which is, and you can hold non-traditional assets. You can hold things other than stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. That's right. And like you said, when you create a account with your company, it's not like there's going to be an option for self-directed IRA. All of them are self-directed. All just by the fact that where the custodian means any account you have, whether it's a 401k or a SEP or a traditional, by definition, means it's self-directed because we're the custodian that allows for it to be self-directed and hold alternative assets. Right. That's right. So let's go back to one of your big questions that get asked a lot. What is the transfer in time between taking uh, between taking funds from one account to another account in your guys' Yeah. And, and that's not, again, that's not necessarily like anytime you're transferring accounts between IRA custodians, whether you move from Charles Schwab to Fidelity or you move from Charles Schwab to Entrust, there's going to be a process involved with you have to liquidate whatever assets you hold and then they have to do a transfer. And typically what we see is about five to seven business days over like on average. Um, some custodians are quicker than others. I've seen, you know, we're 
So when you do an IRA to IRA transfer, you fill out the transfer request of, and like for transferring to Entrust, fill out our transfer form, and then we send it to your current custodian, then they transfer the money over to us. From that point that we send the transfer form, on average, five to seven business days. It's not really a very long time, but I also have seen it happen as quick as a day or two. If you have, like if you as the account holder with, you know, your, your brokerage firm, you have a certain relationship with them, you can always call them up and say, hey, you know, I need this transfer process quickly. And there's a chance that they'll do it, you know, particularly prompt. Some are pretty slow, but on average, like if we had a bell curve, the bell, the top of the bell would be five to seven days. And I've seen it as quick as one to two days. I've also seen it take as long as a couple of weeks, depending upon some custodians, I won't mention who, but some tend to be particularly slow, whether they have a backlog or they just don't hop on it right away. I don't really know, but we can, I can tell whenever a transfer is coming in from a certain custodian, it's like, like, yeah, don't expect that to come for a couple of weeks. Now, in terms of creating an account with interest or any other company, it's just yeah. like creating an account. It's like yep. no big deal. 10 minutes, Open an account. you're done. Yeah. 10 minutes through the no online special portal, paperwork. name, address, social security number, date of birth. Like we, all of us who hold all custodians, um, trust companies that hold retirement accounts, we have certain requirements that we need to meet uh, to meet, it's under the Patriot Act called uh, Customer Identification Protocols. And so we have to ask you for certain information, your name, address, social security number. We need to get a copy of your ID for signature verification purposes. And then we also run a, a background, like a check through LexisNexis is who we use that verifies that, that essentially that the name you give us, the social security number, the address that you gave us and your date of birth is consistent with what records show, right? So LexisNexis has, is able to run that. People sometimes who recently move, for example, and they use their most recent address, it might kick back and say, like, we can't verify this address. So then we have to go back to the account holder and we ask for them to actually send like a, you know, a, a, a lease agreement or a, or a purchase contract or, you know, something that shows a, a utility bill that shows that address. And then we can confirm it. But other than that, and that only happens like 90, over 90 percent of the people just it automatically opens the account because all the information is confirmed. But you're right. Opening an account with us, I don't think is uh, if you go to open a bank account with Wells Fargo or if you go to open an IRA with a Fidelity or somebody like that, it's probably the same thing. Go through the online port protocol. It takes maybe 10 minutes in general to open an account. So I guess the limiting factor is that transferring funds from one custodian to another custodian. Yeah, yeah, that's the that's typically the longest part of the process. And then the other thing is when people are making the difference between when you're making an investment with a self-directed account as opposed to when you have an account with a brokerage firm is that those brokerage firms, it's they're investing in publicly traded stocks, bonds, mutual funds, and those are all traded on the exchange. Their large extent, they're entering the information and hitting a button and those exchanges happen very quickly, right? Those, yep. those purchases happen because it's all through the New York Stock Exchange or the Amex. It's all, it's all publicly traded. So they simply have to get verification that you want to purchase, you know, 10,000 shares of Apple stock or whatever it is. And then they place the trade through your IRA and boom, it's done. Whereas with alternative assets, with things like real estate, with things like an investment in a private company or a private fund, there's actual physical paperwork. Like a, a private fund isn't traded over any exchange. So they have to submit a purchase agreement to us, or often it's called a subscription agreement. And there's a physical document. And on that document where it lists them or a property, let's use property as an example, because, you know, a lot of people who's listening, you know, maybe have been through the process of buying a, a property in their lives. There's a closing process, right? It has to go to title and it has to go to, you know, this review process. And, and you ha it, it typically takes like a, a, 
a fast close on a property is often three weeks, right? So the difference between that typical process where you personally bought a property and your name is on the purchase contract and your name is on all the closing documents and your name is on title is that it's your IRA is the name of the entity that's on title, right? So if you were to open a retirement account and go buy an investment property, it's not Sean Pan that's buying the property. It's the interest group for benefit of, or just the letters FBO, Sean Pan, IRA number, and then whatever your account number is, at least that's the, that's the vesting or the titling that Entrust uses. Somebody else might use a little bit different wording, but ultimately it's sort of the same thing and that it's going to be name of custodian for benefit of account holder. And then it includes the account number somewhere in there. That's pretty standard IRA titling. And so people see that and there's an actual physical document that shows the name of the, the asset being bought under the IRA. So because things like real estate and private placements and, and even precious metals, if somebody wants to buy metals like gold or silver, you have to find a dealer and you have to like tell the dealer you want to buy it. And the dealer has to send the invoice and then we have to send the money from the account to the dealer. And then the, the, the metals have to get sent to a depository. There's this whole manual transaction that you don't have with publicly traded stuff because you're not just hitting the button and boom, it goes over an exchange and the purchase is made. Right. And so, um, so sometimes people can get a little sort of mixed up at the idea that it's a, an entity, it's a retirement account that's buying it and not themselves personally. But the same thing happens when you buy a mutual fund or stock using your retirement account. That stock or mutual fund is held in the name of, you know, fidelity for benefit of, et cetera, or whatever titling they use, except you don't see that actual naming because there's, it's traded over an exchange. You don't have paperwork that you need to sign. But back in the day, whenever they used to send actual stock certificates, if you bought it inside your retirement account, that stock certificate was held in the name of your retirement account and it was held by your custodian. It wasn't held by you physically. So the same thing, you buy real estate, title is held, title on that property once it closes is held by your retirement account. And that title paperwork, the actual physical title document, needs to be held by the custodian. You don't get to keep possession of it because you don't own the account or you don't own the property. It's the account that owns the property. Do you guys sign the paperwork or do we still sign paperwork? Well, we, so Entrust has the custodian of the account or your custodian of your account signs all the documents. So purchase contract in the name of the IRA signed by Entrust. Um, if you have a, a, a rental agreement, right? If you're renting it out and you have a rental agreement, it's the account that's renting it out. I mean, unless you use a property manager, you could have an agreement with the property manager and the property manager can sign the rental agreement, but then Entrust is signing the agreement with the property manager, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's the account. An IRA can borrow money. There are financial institutions that will lend money to your retirement account to borrow money to then turn around and buy a property. It's the account that's borrowing the money. So Entrust has to sign that document on behalf of the IRA. Now, Legally, you know, the custodian has to sign those documents and trust for one, we do have a policy in place where we ask our account holders to add what's called their read and approve signature on any document they want us to sign. So a purchase contract or a loan agreement or, you know, any of those, we ask our just the we'll sign the document, the signature line as the investor, but we ask our clients to just somewhere write read and approved and sign next to that. That's a way that we do it. Other custodians might do it differently. So there is an aspect of the client, the account holder does need to sign the document, but that's for entrust. That's not for like, you know, the seller of a property 
doesn't need the individual signature. They only need interest signature, but we ask for the individual signature for our own internal process. Got it. So I want to go back to transferring money from accounts. I think most of the retirement money isn't in IRAs. They're probably yep. in 401ks. 401ks, yeah. So is there a process of transferring money from 401ks into an IRA? Yeah. I mean, it's called a rollover. So when it's going from an IRA to an IRA, it's a transfer. When it's going from a 401k, 403b, pension plan, any other thing other than an IRA to a, an IRA, then it's processed as a rollover. And the difference between the two is that the transfer request for an IRA to IRA transfer, the transfer request comes from the receiving custodian. So they fill out our transfer form, we send it to your current custodian, they transfer it to us. With a rollover, it's initiated by the account holder. So you contact your 401k provider and tell them you wanna do a rollover and then they'll have a process for you. They might take it over the phone, they might have a form for you to fill out, they might ask you to enter some information online. The different custodians will have it differently, but the key is the account holder has to initiate the rollover. It can't be initiated by us. A rollover is technically a distribution in which you then have 60 days to roll it over into a new account. Now, the rollover can be a direct rollover where they send the money directly to us, but the fact remains is that's still processed as a distribution on the, on the 401k provider's end, and then we report that we receive the rollover, and so there's no tax consequences. There's just an IRA to IRA transfer. There's no tax reporting or anything with a with an rollover, a 401k to IRA. There is reporting, but there's still no tax consequences as long as the rollover is done within 60 days. So in theory, you could have that money go to you, and then you could do something with it for 59 days, and then on the 60th day, roll it over into your new account, and there's no tax consequences associated with that. Um, you're right. Majority of money like that go into IRAs where it's sometimes probably held in like a 401k. Uh, one thing I will point out is a question that I commonly get asked. You're typically not going to be able to roll over from a 401k in which you're still working for the company that you're covered by that 401k plan. Well, that's not to say never. It depends upon the 401k plan. Some 401k plans allow for it, what's called an in-service distribution or in-service withdrawal. If the plan allows for that, then you can roll it over into an IRA. If the plan doesn't allow for it, then you need some kind of triggering event, which is typically you leave the company. That's the most that's the most common triggering event that allows you to roll over a 401k to an IRA. But there also can be like an age, like there some 401k plans, once you hit a certain age, will allow you to roll over. Um, you know, maybe when you reach a certain, uh, not even age, but but years with the company. I mean, it, it, it really depends upon the plan itself, but most company 401k plans, in particular big companies, aren't gonna allow you to roll over until unless you leave the company. That's great you mentioned that because that was my follow-up question. When I started working at my current job, I was told that I was not allowed to roll over my money into an IRA. And I was thinking like, is this real or are they trying to scam me right now? Well, I mean, if you ever do really want to check that for sure, you have 401k plan documents. When you open a 401k account, you become part of the plan. And there are plan documents that have the rules of the plan. And you know, for anybody who's listening, if you want to check that, if you don't, you know, you don't necessarily want to talk to your benefits administrator or call the provider themselves, look for the words in-service withdrawal or in-service distribution. And if it has that in there, then if it says, well, it may have it in there that it says you're not allowed to do an in-service withdrawal. But if it has in there that you can do an in-service distribution and they're telling you can't roll over to, a, to an IRA, then they're not following the plan rules because the plan states that you can do an in-service distribution, then you can roll over to an IRA. Yeah. 
And because if you only have an IRA, from what I understand, the maximum that you can contribute a year is like 5,500 bucks, right? Well, it's up to 6,000, but we're talking about a traditional or Roth IRA. So that's, um, so those are, those are like anybody with earned income can open and contribute to a traditional or Roth IRA, right? Anybody with a, with a retirement account can roll over or transfer into a traditional IRA. Those are just, those are um, individual, I mean, the IRA stands for individual retirement arrangement, but in this specifically, we're talking about individual plans here or individual accounts. There are IRAs called a SEP IRA and a simple IRA where those are employer-sponsored retire IRAs, which if you're self-employed or you have your own company, then a, a SEP, for example, so if we have realtors, if you have, you know, typical realtors are typically self-employed, right? They're independent contractors. A lot of realtors who want to have a retirement account can have a SEP and they can contribute up to $56,000, right? So it's based on 25% of your income. So not all IRAs, traditional and Roth IRAs, it's $6,000. As of 2019, it was 5,500 last year. It's gone up to $6,000 in 2019. Unless you're 50 or older, you can do additional 1,000. That's up to $7,000. But if you're self-employed uh, or if you're you know, an independent contractor or you have your own company, then you can look into doing your own 401k. You can look into having a SEP IRA or a simple IRA, and those allow much higher contribution limits than a traditional or Roth. And is there such a thing like a Roth SEP IRA, or is it only traditional for SEP? There is only, yeah, there's no such thing as a Roth. A SEP is, is a traditional IRA for business owners, basically. They're both pre, a, pre, a traditional IRA and a SEP and a simple, and typically a 401k. Uh, they're pre-tax accounts. So you make a pre-tax contribution. You get a tax deduction when you make the contribution, but it grows tax deferred. There are Roth options to 401k plans. Like our individual 401k plan has a Roth option. So it allows you to contribute a post-tax contribution to through a 401k that allows you to contribute a much higher amount, but it also grows tax-free, right? You don't get the tax deduction, but it grows tax-free. That's the big benefit of a Roth. Um, but there is no sort of the equivalent of a Roth SEP, right? That allows you to contribute up to $56,000 through uh, uh, an employer-sponsored Roth IRA. There's just the Roth option of a 401k plan. And again, I go back to, it's essentially the same as the, the, um, in, the uh, in-service withdrawal. The plan has to allow for that, right? So if you work for a company that you have a 401k and you would rather do like a post-tax contribution and, and have it you know, potentially be a Roth, you have to find out if that plan has a Roth option included as part of the plan because not all of them do. And can you briefly go over what a simple IRA is? I don't think I've heard that one before. So simple is an acronym. It's an IRA for typically for businesses that have less than 100 employees. And so it allows for, see with a SEP IRA, it's the employer that's making the entire contribution. So the employee with a 401k with a, with a, and with a simple, the employee can make a contribution and the employer can have a match or they can even exceed the match if they choose to. With a SEP, it's only the employer that's making the contribution. So this is handy for people who are self-employed. Again, realtors, somebody like that who are essentially deciding how much they wanna pay themselves, they can, they can report business income and then they can report personal income. And so I think most people who have are self-employed report their whole entire business income is personal income, but you don't have to, you can choose to separate that out. And so as a business owner, you can contribute to the SEP up to 25% of the income you're going to pay yourself. With a simple, 
it's the employee that can make a contribution and then the employer has a, a, a 3% match or an option, optional 2% contribution. And the employee can contribute up to 13, 13, five, I think is where we're at right now in, in 2000, uh, 2019. So again, it's an employer sponsored plans, typically for companies who have less than hundred employees have a simple. Uh, anytime I get into a discussion with somebody around, you know, who wants who particularly self-employed or has their own business, like I, I'll pull out the documents, I'll explain the rules, I'll send them like this summary document we have, but ultimately the best plan for any individual of what they wanna do, I always suggest you should be talking to your CPA about which plan works best for you. I can talk about the rules, I can explain the contribution limits, um, and even talk about the pros and cons to some extent, but ultimately any individual who is looking to open an account and particularly business owners, they should talk to an advisor or CPA about which plan, which type of account is best for them. Yeah, that makes sense. And what is the benefits of investing in real estate inside a retirement account? Well, any investment that you do, I mean, the ultimate point of having a retirement account is to grow the retirement account as much as you can until, you know, you're ready to retire. And then you have a nice big retirement account that you can live off of. So it really comes down to what investment do you want to make inside your retirement account that you think is best equipped to grow your account, right? So, I mean, a lot of people have grown their retirement accounts through investing in stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. I mean, that's certainly what I did for a long time up until I, you know, sort of became aware of self-directed accounts. Um, so if you think that real estate is, or, or real estate along with mutual funds, along with maybe metals, like it's really just a tool like self-directed is really just a, a tool to allow you to choose what types of investments you want to make to grow your retirement account. And so obviously real estate offers a lot of advantages from a standpoint of not only do you get equity, but you also can potentially get cash flow from it, right? It's almost like a dividend paying stock where a company pays a dividend, but the, also the company can increase in value. So that stock can get a cash flow coming in through a dividend, but it also can increase in value as the company uh, value increases. Um, not quite as many, you know, dividend paying companies out there, but if you get a cash flowing rental property that where you're renting it out and it's cash flowing, you're getting cash coming into the account. Plus, obviously a property can appreciate where well, you're getting that benefit of both the appreciation of the value of the property as well as cash flow coming in. So I don't, you know, it's a, it's a question I get sometimes from a standpoint of why would I invest in real estate in my retirement account as opposed to like in my personal savings? When, when I do it through my personal savings, I get to deduct depreciation and, and things like that, whereas you don't get to do that inside a retirement account. And I always tell people they're making the wrong comparison. It's not comparing investing it inside your retirement account versus outside your retirement account. It's you have a retirement account. You're going to invest inside the retirement account. It's what do you want to invest inside your retirement account? Do you want to invest in real estate as opposed to the stock market, as opposed to metals, as opposed to a private fund? Like the options are out there. So you're gonna invest in something. I mean, or unless you're not, right? Unless you wanna just keep it in cash and that's an option too. Um, but it comes down to how do you wanna invest your money inside your retirement account? There's nothing to say you can't hold real estate inside your retirement account and hold real estate outside your retirement account. Now, you might not wanna do that for from a diversification standpoint. You want, might not wanna be that tied up into real estate, uh, but it just comes down to what investment do you think is best equipped to grow your retirement account and then make the decision accordingly. Yep. You know, I heard that once you have properties inside your retirement account, you are like not allowed to work on it actively. Can you talk a little bit more about that? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so there are rules around the IRS has in place that the, the overriding theme around it is based around self-dealing, that you're not allowed to engage in self-dealing. And so there are specific people that are considered disqualified persons to your IRA. And that's the, that's the wording that you have in the Internal Revenue Code. It's a disqualified person. And essentially, if you're looking to invest in real estate, a disqualified person, you can't sell a property, your IRA can't buy a property from or sell a property to a disqualified person, nor can a disqualified person ever stay in a property or do physical labor on a property, do like sweat equity, swinging a hammer. And those people, disqualified persons, are the account holder, the account holder's spouse, then it goes through the lineal family line, the account holder's ancestors, so parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, all the way up the line, the account holder's lineal descendants, so that's children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, etc., and spouses of any lineal descendants. Those are the list of disqualified persons. So again, if there's a property out there, you want to use your IRA to buy property as an investment, that's fine. It just can't buy property from yourself, your spouse, your ancestors, your descendants. At some point, if you want to sell it, you can't. You can sell it, but not to a disqualified person. And then those list of people can't ever stay in a property that's owned by an IRA or do physical labor. So if you wanted to buy a home in, like, let's say, another country and you want to be able to go vacation there sometimes, like you can buy a home in, a in another country, but you can't go vacation there, right? If you want to buy a home, you have a, a child in college and you want to buy a home in that college town and have it rented out and you know and you want your kid to stay there you can rent it out you can buy it but your kid's not allowed to stay there they're a disqualified person your ira and also like i said can't they can't do physical labor on it they can't swing a hammer they can't put sweat equity into it but you're allowed to do i guess non-physical labor on it right like you can manage the property maybe yeah you can... right you can be the responsible for the asset so Let's talk about what we mean by managing a property, because a lot of times a property manager, one of the things that they'll do is they'll receive the rent checks and then they'll like deposit and keep account. And they'll, you know, then they'll forward the money on to the account holder or they'll forward the money on to like if you had a property in your personal name, you used a property manager. A lot of times the property manager is receiving the rent and then they're forwarding the rent checks to you after they receive it, right? They may be deposited into account, they take their, you know, whatever percent, and then they forward you the net. Or maybe they keep a they keep a balance for you. So when you get a property tax or insurance, then you send the property manager the bill and they just pay it right from the account, right? Like stuff like that, which is fine. But if you're gonna manage your own property, which means you're allowed to show a property to the tenant. Like you're allowed to be pro responsible for the property, which means that if work needs to be done on it, you can hire the contractors. You can show them the work. Like you can go to the property. You can point out like that you've got this leak or something needs to be repaired, or you can show a tenant the property. You can put an ad up and say, I'm, you know, I've got this rental property and meet them there and show it to them. So those are all things that you're allowed to do because you're allowed to be responsible for making sure that your, your asset generates a return on investment. What you can't do as a manager is you can't receive the money. You can't receive the rent and hold it into an account, right, on behalf of your IRA. The rent money has to come to the IRA directly. Now, you can physically receive a check from the tenant, but the check has to be made out to your account and then the you know and then they have to forward it the you you as the as the owner have to forward it directly to entrust a deposit into your account so let's talk about what you cannot invest in yeah three things collectibles so like art uh alcoholic beverages um coin collections beanie and babies gonna, <laughs> beanie babies right right 
um, uh, what was it when I was a kid? Something, um, what were they called? Uh, pet rocks? Yeah, stuff like that. So collectibles, life insurance, and S-corporation. So you can, a corporation can be established as a C-corp, an LLC, a limited partnership. Like there's different uh, ways you can establish a, a, comp a company and your IRA can invest in any of them except an S-corporation. So just from a collectible standpoint, so just to clarify, like something like alcoholic beverages, so you can't own wine inside your retirement account, but you could invest in a winery, for example. Um, you can't hold art, but you could invest in an art gallery, right? So one's a business, the other one's a collectible. And then there's there's metals. Your IRA can invest in precious metals, but it can't invest in like, um, um, like coin collections. And what it really comes down to is there's a purity or fineness that determines whether it's investment grade or collectible. And so there are dealers out there that sell investment grade, you know, gold, silver. Um, and then there are, are people out there that sell collectibles of like coin collections. And so it just comes down to who you're buying it from. If it's investment grade, then your IRA can invest in it. And if it's, if it's collectible, you can't. Okay. But sense. other than that, other than that, like, as long as you can imagine it, your IRA can invest in it. But again, the large thing comes down to making sure that whatever you're investing in, you're not planning on doing it, you know, using that investment in a way that's considered prohibited, right? So you're not getting personal use out of the investment. So one good example of this that sort of falls in the, like a unique circumstances is classic cars. So you might think that that's a collectible, but classic cars can actually be an investment inside a retirement account, right? Like I had, Back when I was fairly new to this company and new to the job, I had a conversation with someone who had done his research and he knew for a fact you could invest in classic cars. So he wanted to buy a classic car or like a really high priced car. But here's the thing. He can't ever sit in the car. He can't wash the car. Can't certainly can't drive the car. Like you literally like just have to put it in some kind of um, and can't keep it at his own place, right? It has to be held at some facility where that facility is paid by the IRA or held by a third party. It can't be like in his own home or anything like that. And literally can't even, he can go look at the car, but that's about the extent you can do. And you basically are holding it to appreciate. So that's one example of something where, you know, like it, it, it can be done, but you can't use it in any way that I had mentioned earlier that we had somebody invest in an airplane one time. It was, he bought an airplane. I, I wasn't with the company at the time, so it was before I was around. But my understanding is they used their IRA to buy an airplane and then they leased it out. So people who wanted to lease this airplane, the, the IRA owned the airplane. The IRA paid the pilot to go. So he couldn't find it like the owner couldn't. The account holder could never find it, couldn't get on the airplane, could never like couldn't cannot get. Well, actually, that's not true. I guess they could probably get in the airplane because you can go into your house. If your IRA owns a house, it's not like you're not allowed to walk through the front door. I don't think can't like use it. I you guess. can't use it. You can't find yeah. it. Yeah. Um, but he, it was a business. And so he was leasing out the airplane to people who wanted to rent the airplane and the IRA owned it and, and received the payments for it. So, you know, investments like that are allowed as long as you're using the investment for investment purposes for the benefit of the IRA, not for your personal use and personal benefit. What about for like federally prohibited things for example like you mentioned earlier like cannabis, cannabis is, yeah cannabis yeah. is federally prohibited but it is legal right. in different states well so you can't hold cannabis inside your retirement account like you can't go buy you know 100 <laughs> pounds of weed or anything like that right but there are businesses in the cannabis industry and yes. those are businesses right so your ira can invest in a private company and a private businesses so for example 
there are like with the, the new legalization in different states, what has what has had to come up from that is because these different states have certain testing laws. Like they have to test like a certain amount of like, you know, like every pound or something like that has to get tested. There are labs that have popped up to, to help service this need. Your IRA can invest in a lab. There are funds out there. There are private funds that are investing in the cannabis industry. They're investing in the labs. They're investing in, um, you know, real estate that is leasing out to people who are growing, right? Your IRA can own real estate that's leasing out to, to people who are growers who are, are growing. Now, you're, again, your IRA can't own weed, but it can certainly invest in the industry because there's actual, you know, registered, SEC registered funds that are investing in the cannabis industry, not publicly traded ones, but private funds. And someday there will be publicly traded funds that are investing in the cannabis industry. That's inevitable. Um, but right now, yeah, so an IRA can invest in a business or a fund that's related to the cannabis industry, but they can't hold actual, you know, actual marijuana inside the account. Of course, because I, I mean, I've heard that because it's federally prohibited, even the companies that have like distilleries, they have to keep their money in cash and they actually hire these special security guards to take their money and put into a vault because they can't put it into these like federally insured banks like Chase. They won't take the money. Yeah. I mean, I mean, there's risk in investing in the industry. I mean, I, you know, I'm not saying that like somebody who's choosing to invest, we get investors in cryptocurrency, right? Like we've had people who have used their IRAs to, to set up LLCs and invest in cryptocurrency. There's a significant amount of risk with that. So, so you can invest you, in Bitcoin with a self-directed IRA? Well, with a self you can't actually hold Bitcoin and not with interest anyway. What you have to do is you'd have to have your IRA invest in an LLC that, that you can be the manager of that LLC. And then through that LLC, you can invest in Bitcoin. So ultimately the asset being held inside your IRA is the LLC. But then through that LLC, if you want to invest in Bitcoin, you're free to do that, right? Because that's, a, that's an actual investment. But I mean, for, to talk about what you're talking about, yeah, like cannabis is, a, you know, it's still in some stages. It's like the wild, wild west, right? It's a little bit of a gold rush kind of thing where, yeah, it's cash heavy. You have a lot of banks that have compliance, uh, issues around that, that they don't feel like they can do that. Um, so if you're making investment in a fund or an investment in a business that's in the cannabis industry, you're incurring some of that risk that, you know, something federally might come down or, you know, that, that, that supersedes the state laws and things like that. So you're just, you're incurring that risk. But from an interest standpoint as custodian, if you submit a document to us and instruct us to invest in a business, we're not doing research on that business to make sure that it isn't, you know, it's in some industry that you're allowed to invest in. That's not our responsibility. That's your responsibility to take on as the account holder. And if it ends up where you either lose that investment because the business got raided, I mean, that's on you. That's not, we, again, we don't do any due diligence on the investment that you make. What we're doing is we're trying to make sure that you're not a prohibited transaction or you're not a disqualified person to the entity that you're investing in. And that the investment that you're doing, that it's properly structured in the name of your IRA, right? Not in your personal name. And that you submit the appropriate documents to us so that when we're subject to regulatory audits, when we're under scrutiny for that, what they come in and look for is that, that we followed our client's instructions, that we had the appropriate supporting documentation, and that we didn't, we didn't process anything that's an obvious prohibited transaction. But we're not expected to do any due diligence on the company to make sure that it's you know, it's legal. Well, that being said, we are subject to to uh, to certain OFAC regulations, um, which is the um, Office of Foreign Asset Control that like if we're sending money to, you know, some country that 
it, you know, it doesn't smell right, then there are there are requirements we have to report that that you know that it looks like it could be, and it falls under the Patriot Act. There's rules under the Patriot Act associated with that. So I don't want to give the impression that like we'll process anything. Like if something comes in where, particularly if it's going you know out of the country, there there are certain you know rules that we need to do from a review standpoint to make sure that they're not engaging any sort of terrorist type activities. Um, but that's you know that's a whole different thing than investing in a company that might be you know engaged in the, in the industry that right now regulatory wise has still got some you know some openness to it that that's not quite settled for at least from a federal standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, it seems like you guys are giving us a lot of opportunity out here by letting us choose what we want to invest in. So what are the fees that are typically associated with an interest account? Yeah, really. I mean. Again, I'm going to tell you specifically and trust fees, but I, again, I want to point out the self-directed IRA industry is inexpensive, right? So we're all pretty inexpensive um, and we all sort of fall into a fairly narrow range. But for us, I mean, we typically charge $50 to establish an account. We have a transaction fee to process the investment of, of $95 if it's a non-real estate transaction. So like LLC or something like that or a promissory note that's not collateralized by real estate, or a $175 fee to process a real estate transaction. And then we have uh, an annual record keeping fee of, we have two options, a flat fee of $299 per asset per year. So if you buy a property inside your account, that property could be worth $50,000, it could be worth a million dollars. It's one asset, we charge a flat fee of $299 a year. We also offer a fee option based on the value of the account that could be as low as $199 a year. So depending upon the dollar, if you're only looking to invest, say, $20,000 in something, then our fee is, is the minimum is $199 a year. We also have a special fee option for um, precious metals and certain crowdfunding sites that's a flat $150 a year. So there's some crowdfunding sites we have relationships with where we'll process the transaction, we'll hold, and they can hold five different investments in a crowdfunding site, and we'll just process of we'll charge a flat 150 and it's the same with precious metals they could invest in gold they can invest in silver hold multiple different metals and we only charge 150 dollars a year um, the reason for the metals thing is because those metals have to get shipped to a depository and the depository is going to charge you a fee so when we're a custodian of real estate or something like that not only are we processing the transaction but we're holding custody of the asset which is typically just paperwork but with metals we don't have a, like a facility to hold metals, so they get shipped to a depository. So since we can't hold the metals for you and you're going to have to pay a fee, or really your account's going to have to pay, pay a fee, we essentially reduce our fee so that it, you don't have to pay as much. Like it, it's like combined between our fee plus the depository, it's not like an overwhelming fee to have to be paid. Yeah, it goes to Fort Knox and gets locked up so you don't even get to see your gold coins. Well, it goes from Fort Knox to a depository. Like, so there are, there are the, the depositories, I forget the names of them. We have them on our website, but no, Fort Knox holds gold. But like you're, I think, I mean, unless I'm misunderstanding, we have a, we have a precious metal center based out of Reno who like knows much more about it than I do. But I think that, I think it actually ships from places like when it's bought, it goes from places like Fort Knox where it's held essentially and then it goes to these depositories. Um, and then there's a dealer that essentially, or maybe the dealer buys them from Fort Knox. And I don't even, I probably shouldn't be speculating, but no, Fort Knox is not a depository. It's not one of the depositories that a client would would use as, as someone to hold the metals on behalf of them. Gotcha. A quick question for you. What do you think is better, the Roth or traditional? 
Yeah. So as I tell everybody whenever they ask for better, better is a very relative term. So a traditional is a pre-tax contribution that grows tax deferred, which means at some point when you take a withdrawal, you're going to have to pay taxes on it. A Roth is a post-tax contribution that grows tax-free. So any earnings that you make, you're going to grow tax-free. So from a standpoint of, I think it could almost, I mean, it's hard to argue that growing a, a account tax-free isn't better than growing a tax deferred. I think from that definitely, like it almost is hard to argue that a, a, a traditional could ever be better than a Roth when a Roth is tax-free. But the concept behind retirement accounts is when you make a contribution, when you're getting earned income and you make a contribution, you're at like, and I'm, you're not, nobody's going to see this, but you're at a higher tax bracket. So let's say you're at a tax bracket of 30 some percent, right? And when you retire, and you start taking withdrawals, well, now your tax bracket is maybe 20%, right? And so you, you lower your taxable income when you're at a higher tax bracket, and then you take withdrawals when you're at a lower tax bracket. So that's the concept originally, like Roths didn't come in until later. Originally, retirement accounts started with Keo accounts. They were all pre-tax that grow tax deferred. The point was is, hey, we'll give you a tax break now while you're making more money. And then later on when you're making less money and you need to take withdrawal, you won't have to pay as much taxes. So the, the split between the two is a benefit to you, right? Like you pay 15% less on all that money that you contributed than if you had not been able to take a deduction at the time. With a Roth, you don't get any deduction, but it does grow tax-free. So I mean, we have we have had a lot of people who have made an investment inside like their traditional IRA. And then they're like, something's going on with that investment. They invest in a startup company or a private fund or something, and they know something's coming. Like it's gonna get bought out or something like that. And they move that they move that thing into a Roth, right? Because all of a sudden it's about to jump. Now they've got when you move it from a traditional to a Roth, you're gonna take a tax hit, right? Because you're moving it from a pre-tax account to a post-tax and in order to do that you have to pay taxes but i mean if you can if you can grow something tax-free as opposed to tax deferred it's hard to argue that that's not better right but again i'm going to come back to better is different for different people right and so it, it, it's always going to be your individual situation so i don't really ever sort of tell someone that one is better versus the other because it depends but I mean, again, it's hard not to argue that a Roth is better than tax deferred. And final question, like imagine that, you know, a magical spell got cast on you and you are able to talk to your 22 year old self, you know, right out of college. Hmm. What would you tell? What would you tell them? From a standpoint of IRAs, self-directed? Sure. Yeah. Sure. I mean, know that this exists. Know that self-directed IRAs is an option out there. Like that's, and that's really sort of the theme of my job because I'm not, I'm not necessarily trying to convince anybody that they should have a self-directed IRA or that it's, you know, the right move for them. But I think, like, I truly believe this. Everybody should know that self-directed IRAs is a thing and not many people do, right? Like you have trillions, like counting 401ks, there is over 20 some trillion dollars in retirement accounts, trillion dollars. Just IRAs, I think it's like seven trillion, right? 97% of that is, I think, the last figure I heard, and maybe it's down to like 96 whole percent. 97% of that is in traditional brokerage, stock bonds, mutual funds type things, right? 3% of all that trillions of dollars is in alternative assets, is in self-directed accounts. And so, like, yeah, there are definitely some decisions I made, in particular in my 30s, um, that I ended up paying the price for a little bit 
um, from a tax standpoint, because I, I had pulled some money out to make an investment because it was in my retirement account. And I didn't think I could do it inside a retirement account that actually it ended up being a bad investment. I lost some money and, and sort of got ripped off. But I also had the tax head and I was going to get ripped off because I made the bad decision. Right. But and I can live with that. Like I kind of knew at the time. The frustrating part is knowing that I could have avoided the tax that I had associated with it by just doing it inside a retirement account. So I, I would just like I, I wish that I had known that this existed as an option. That's all. Not that I would have started out doing it. I wouldn't have. I mean, I wasn't making much money. I was working for a company that had a 401k plan. And but I mean, after my first nine years in the industry, I left that company and I had no K 401k plan at that point. Like now, all of a sudden, I would have been able to start. And I at that point also. I now owned personally a couple of investment properties. From the time that happened, I had living in Chicago, had been able to, to buy a condo that I moved out and kept it and rented. And so I had some experience with real estate investing. Yeah, I would have I would have definitely done some things. I would definitely would have done some things definitely in my retirement account. I just wish I had known that it was even a thing, that it that it existed as an option at the time. So at what point should people be going into self-directed IRAs versus just leaving it into stocks and bonds. And I think whatnot. when they find, when they have an investment in mind that they think is going to grow their retirement account better than stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. Like if, if there's an asset out there that they've come across or, um, I mean, here's the thing. We're not going to be doing any due diligence. So when they should do it is when they are comfortable doing their own research and due diligence on the investment and not expecting, you know, a third party like a broker to to recommend and do the do the due diligence for them. They have to do it themselves. And so anytime anybody's ready to like if they're if they're doing it themselves already personally, then you're ready to do it inside a retirement account. And then it's just a matter of finding the investment that you want to make. And that's typically I mean, a lot of conversations I have with people when they call up to understand how it works, what stops them from doing it is they haven't found an investment yet. Like I follow up with these people. I have conversations. I follow up a month or two later, said, hey, we talked, haven't heard from you since, just checking in. And usually the response is, yeah, I haven't found anything yet. I mean, I'm still interested. I'm, you know, I'm still thinking about doing it, but I haven't found an investment I want to make. And so, you know, that's the big thing is when it, with, with self-directed is, again, the account holder is responsible for doing all the research and due diligence. And if you're not comfortable with that, and I understand there's a significant percentage of population just hasn't, doesn't have the time or the interest. And so they're all, you know, they're too busy just doing their jobs and making their income and, and allowing a, a broker or an advisor to suggest those things. Like that's great. I mean, people have done that for, for centuries and it works very well for them. Um, but you know, if that's, if that's what you're comfortable with then you should never have a self-directed IRA because you know, self-directed IRA in, inherently means that you're going to have to do some legwork and do your own research and due diligence. Perfect. Thanks a lot for all your information you gave to us today. How can people get in contact with you? Um, well, uh, our website is uh, www.theentrustgroup.com. Um, my email is uh, my first initial, my last name, B. Neville, N-E-V-I-L-L-E, at theentrustgroup.com. And then uh, I'm here, in, I'm in Oakland, California. Uh, my phone number is 510-587-0950 uh, and then my extension's 237. So uh, there's multiple different ways. Go to our website, all my contacts information's on our website. And, and uh, there's a lot of good information on our website. We have a learning center on there that has a lot of educational material articles. We do monthly webinars um, that we keep on there. Um, don't do podcasts yet, although that's something I should probably talk to you about. Um, 
But uh, yeah, so there's a lot of just go to our website is, is ultimately what I would steer people towards and educate yourself a little bit. And then if you want to reach out to me, just uh, just give me a holler or send me an email. Perfect. And is there anything else that you think that we should know that we probably don't know? You know, specifically the prohibited transactions, disqualified persons rules, like those are really, really important to know. Because if you commit a prohibited transaction inside your IRA, you're essentially putting your account at risk of being considered disqualified. And if it's disqualified, now you've got a distribution and you've got taxes and pen potential penalty consequences associated with that. So it's not as simple as like making a mistake on your taxes where, you know, they may charge you a penalty and you have to, you know, redo your taxes with an IRA. If they disqualify your IRA. There's no going back like that's that's done. Your IRA is distributed to you. So, um, yeah, I mean, the, the, that's the most important thing. I feel like we, we covered the most important stuff. This was good. All right. Perfect. So thanks a lot for being on the show today and giving us all this wonderful information. I definitely know who I'm going to call when I want to open up my own personal self-directed IRA. All right, Sean. Thanks for having me. Here are some of the key takeaways from my conversations with Bill. It's important to know that self-directed IRAs exist. You're not limited in only investing in stocks, bonds, and mutual funds in your retirement account. And they're really inexpensive and can be opened in just 10 minutes like any other account. And there are some things that you can invest in, such as collectibles, life insurance policies, and S-Corps, but pretty much everything else is fair game. And you need to be careful about how you use an asset in your retirement account because if you do something that breaks the rules, the IRS considers the entire account invalid and you'll have to pay a huge tax penalty for it. And when it comes to investing in real estate in your retirement account, you should make the comparison of whether to invest through a personal account or through a retirement account. Instead, the comparison should be between what to invest in inside your retirement account. Do you prefer to invest in stocks, bonds, and mutual funds? Or do you prefer to invest in real estate? Or do you prefer to invest in other businesses, tax-free or tax-deferred? And finally, it seems like Roths are the way to go. Tax-free is often better than tax-deferred, but it really depends on your own situation. Hope you learned a lot. The show notes can be found on the website, everythingrei.com. Thanks, and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It'll take less than a second, and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at seanpanrealty at gmail.com. That's S-E-A-N-P-A-N-R-E-A-L-T-Y at gmail.com. Thanks, and have a great day.